episode 34, part two, chapter four. Winston looked round the shabby little room above Mr. Charrington's shop. Beside the window, the enormous bed was made up with ragged blankets and a coverless bolster. The old-fashioned clock with the 12-hour face was ticking away on the mantelpiece. In the corner, on the gate-leg table, the glass paperweight which he had bought on his last visit gleamed softly out of the half-darkness. In the fender was a battered tin oil stove, a saucepan, and two cups, provided by Mr. Charrington. Winston lit the burner and set a pan of water to boil. He had brought an envelope full of victory coffee and some saccharin tablets. The clock's hand said 1720. It was 1920, really. She was coming at 1930. Folly, folly, his heart kept saying. Conscious, gratuitous, suicidal folly. Of all the crimes a party member could commit, this one was the least possible to conceal. Actually, the idea had first floated into his head in the form of a vision. A vision of the glass paperweight mirrored by the surface of the gate-leg table. As he had foreseen, Mr. Charrington had made no difficulty about letting the room. He was obviously glad of the few dollars that it would bring him. Nor did he seem shocked or become offensively knowing when it was made clear that Winston wanted the room for the purpose of a love affair. Instead, he looked into the middle distance and spoke in generalities with so delicate an air as to give the impression that he had become partly invisible. Privacy, he said, was a very valuable thing. Everybody wanted a place where they could be alone occasionally, and when they had such a place, it was only common courtesy in anyone else who knew of it to keep his knowledge to himself. He even, seeming almost to fade out of existence as he did so, added that there were two entries to the house, one of them through the backyard, which gave on an alley. Under the window, Somebody was singing. Winston peeped out, secure in the protection of the muslin curtain. The June sun was still high in the sky, and in the sun-filled court below, a monstrous woman, solid as a Norman pillar, with brawny red forearms and a sacking apron strapped around her middle, was stumping to and fro between a washtub and a clothesline pegging out a series of square white things which Winston recognized as baby's diapers. Whenever her mouth was not corked with clothes pegs, she was singing in a powerful contralto. It was only an hopeless fancy. It passed like an April die. But a look and a word and the dreams they stared, they have stolen my heart away. The tune had been haunting London for weeks past. It was one of the countless similar songs published for the benefit of the proles by a subsection of the music department. The words of these songs were composed without any human intervention whatever on an instrument known as a versificator. 
but the woman sang so tunefully as to turn the dreadful rubbish into an almost pleasant sound. He could hear the woman singing and the scrape of her shoes on the flagstones and the cries of the children in the street and somewhere in the far distance, a faint roar of traffic. And yet the room seemed curiously silent thanks to the absence of a telescreen. Folly, 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 he thought again. It was inconceivable that they could frequent this place for more than a few weeks without being caught. But the temptation of having a hiding place that was truly their own, indoors and near at hand, had been too much for both of them. For some time, after their visit to the church belfry, it had been impossible to arrange meetings. Working hours had been drastically increased in anticipation of hate week. It was more than a month distant, but the enormous complex preparations that it entailed were throwing extra work on to everybody. Finally, both of them managed to secure a free afternoon on the same day. They had agreed to go back to the clearing in the wood, on the evening beforehand, they met briefly in the streets. As usual, Winston hardly looked at Julia as they drifted toward one another in the crowd. But from the short glance he gave her, it seemed to him she was paler than usual. It's all off, she murmured, as soon as she judged it safe to speak. Tomorrow, I mean. What? Tomorrow afternoon. I can't come. Why not? Well, the usual reason. It started early this time. For a moment. He was violently angry. During the month that he had known her, the nature of his desire for her had changed. At the beginning, there had been little true sensuality in it. Their first lovemaking had been simply an act of the will. But after the second time, it was different. The smell of her hair, the taste of her mouth, the feeling of her skin seemed to have got inside him or into the air all round him. She had become a physical necessity, something that he not only wanted but felt he had a right to. When she said that she could not come, he had the feeling that she was cheating him. But just at this moment, the crowd pressed them together and their hands accidentally met. She gave the tips of his fingers a quick squeeze that seemed to invite not desire, but affection. It struck him that when one lived with a woman, this particular disappointment must be a normal recurring event. And a deep tenderness, such as he had not felt for her before, suddenly took hold of him. He wished that they were a married couple of 10 years standing. He wished that he were walking through the streets with her just as they were doing now, but openly and without fear, talking of trivialities and buying odds and ends for the household. He wished above all that they had some place where they could be alone together without feeling the obligation to make love every time they met. It was not actually at that moment, but at some time on the following day, that the idea of renting Mr. Charrington's room had occurred to him. When he suggested it to Julia, she had agreed with unexpected readiness. Both of them knew it was lunacy. It was as though they were intentionally stepping nearer to their graves. As he sat 
waiting on the edge of the bed, he thought again of the cellars of the Ministry of Love. It was curious how that predestined horror moved in and out of one's consciousness. There it lay, fixed in future times, preceding death as surely as 99 precedes 100. One could not avoid it, but one could perhaps postpone it. And yet instead, every now and again, by a conscious, willful act, one chose to shorten the interval before it happened. At this moment, there was a quick step on the stairs. Julia burst into the room. She was carrying a tool bag, of course, brown canvas, such as he had sometimes seen her carrying to and fro at the ministry. He started forward to take her in his arms, but she disengaged herself rather hurriedly, partly because she was still holding the tool bag. Have a second, she said. Just let me show you what I've brought. Did you bring some of that filthy victory coffee? <laughs> I thought you would. You can chuck it away again because we shan't be needing it. Look here. She fell on her knees, threw open the bag, and tumbled out some spanners and a screwdriver that filled the top part of it. Underneath were a number of neat paper packets. The first packet that she passed to Winston had a strange and yet vaguely familiar feeling. It was filled with some kind of heavy sand-like stuff that yielded whenever you touched it. It isn't sugar, he said. Real sugar, not saccharin, sugar. And here's a loaf of proper white bread, not our bloody stuff, and a little pot of jam. And here's a tin of milk. But look, this is the one I'm really proud of. I had to wrap a pack of sacking about it because, but she did not need to tell him why she had wrapped it up. The smell was already filling the room, a rich, hot smell, which seemed like an emanation from his early childhood, but which one did occasionally meet with even now, blowing down a passageway before a door slammed or diffusing itself mysteriously in a crowded street, sniffed for an instant and then lost again. It's coffee, he murmured, real coffee. It's inner party coffee. There's a whole kilo here, she said. How did you manage to get a hold of all these things? It's all inner party stuff. There's nothing those swine don't have. Nothing. But of course, waiters and servants and people pitch things. And look, I got a little packet of tea as well. Winston had squatted down beside her. He tore open a corner of the packet. It's real tea, not blackberry leaves. There's been a lot of tea about lately. They've captured India or something, she said vaguely. But listen, dear, I want you to turn your back on me for three minutes. Go and sit on the other side of the bed. Don't go too near the window and don't turn round till I tell you. Winston gazed abstractedly through the muslin curtain. Down in the yard, the red-armed woman was still marching to and fro between the washtub and the line. She took two more pegs out of her mouth and sang with deep feeling. They say that time heals all things. They say you can always forget. But the smiles and the tears across the years, they twist my heartstrings yet. She knew the whole dribbling song by heart, it seemed. 
Her voice floated upward with the sweet summer air, very tuneful, charged with a sort of happy melancholy. One had the feeling that she would have been perfectly content if the June evening had been endless and the supply of clothes inexhaustible. To remain there for a thousand years, pegging out diapers and singing rubbish. It struck him as a curious fact that he had never heard a member of the party singing alone and spontaneously. It would even have seemed slightly unorthodox, a dangerous eccentricity like talking to oneself. Perhaps it was only when people were somewhere near the starvation level that they had anything to sing about. 